please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the chance to come in safety to worship and listen to your word. Bless us all in this time that through your wisdom and power we might be grounded and united as one, even as you are one. Amen. Well, we're now in the second week of our First Corinthians sermon series. Uh, if you were at the park last week, you'll recall um, Father Sean did some setup work explaining to us who the Corinthians were, uh, what was Corinth like, and therefore what kind of swimming pool this young church was swimming in, a church only at most three years old. Um, just a little bit about Corinth. You recall Corinth was a city that was, uh, the ancient city of Corinth was destroyed by Rome and then refounded sometime later as a colony. Um, most times when Rome refounded a place and made a colony, it was basically for retired Roman soldiers. Once you got out of the legion, you had served long enough and you were granted land and privilege in this new city. Um, Corinth was that, and also a great place for re relocation for freed slaves. Because it was a merchant city, uh, and these people who had uh, previous occupations, shall we say, were coming into it, uh, there were a number of people who were making a lot of money. So there were these new rich coming on the scene. The new rich were very interested in trying to justify that they belonged in this stratus of the community. Uh, but with a different setting and now all this money, uh, all of this created a very hedonistic city, a city that sought after whatever desire was top on their list at the time. So much so, especially um, in the sexual realm, that the philosophers of the day would use the term Corinthianize uh, as the equivalent of our F word, uh, and even more racy things. Um, so it was, it was a very <laughs> interesting, colorful city uh, in, in some of the most great terms of colorful. And yet, Paul tells us, we learn from him in these letters, that it was a city sprinkled with God's people. As a result of all this, Paul's letter to the first Corinthians, the first Corinthian letter, it's actually the second, but we don't have the first, so we call it the first, is full of thanksgiving and encouragement and correction. So he's writing to them, but before he gets into the meat of his epistle, before he talks about the realities of life serving and following God, Paul must lay a foundation. And he must lay it in such a way that the Corinthian church will really grasp it and understand it, especially in light of all that's surrounding them. Paul's going to be addressing some very big topics in this letter. He's going to be talking about infighting and sexual immorality, hedonism, social class stratification, and idolatry, just to name a few. So he needs a foundation that's independent from himself and from his readers to talk from that will allow him to walk with steady feet into some very challenging issues. These feet will be so steady 
that they will not be shaken. And because the power of his foundation does not depend on how well he can communicate it, it will even be able to offer stability to his spiritual children there in Corinth. This independent, stable foundation Paul chooses is the gospel, which he calls here the power and wisdom of God. Look with me here in our verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in 19. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now I'm sure you noticed Paul doesn't use the term gospel in this section. So why am I claiming that his terms power and wisdom equate to the gospel? Here, Paul's using shorthand for this very large concept of the gospel. In verse 18, he refers to the word of the cross. And then again in 23, Christ crucified. Paul has a number of these phrases that he uses throughout his epistles. Uh, the word of God, the word of reconciliation, the word of life, and, and sometimes he just says the word. He brings into sharp focus here in this passage the crucifixion of Christ, highlighting that as God's power and wisdom. Now remember our opening, the Corinthian church is growing in this city made up of retired soldiers and freed slaves for the most part. So the ex-military are very aware of crucifixion since very well they may have carried out some. Others, having been slaves at one time, know that they might have been subjected to it. Crucifixion is a particularly horrid and distasteful event for even those who employed it. Cicero, a Roman statesman, orator, lawyer, and philosopher who served as a consul in 63 BC, called it a most cruel and disgusting penalty. And this, this is what Paul says is the power of God. Now don't miss it. Christ crucified is not info about God's power. It's not a demonstration about God's power. Christ crucified is God's power. To Jews, a stumbling block. And to Greeks, folly. You see, the Jew, when he looks at a man hung on a tree, sees, based on Deuteronomy 21-23, a man cursed of God. 
As Paul states in verse 22, Jews demand signs. They're willing to entertain the possibility of signs because they believe miracles could happen, such as being raised from the dead and other things that the apostles have done. But they still question whether those signs reported ever really did happen. Now the Gentile looks at the whole thing and just sees foolishness. He, the Greek, seeks wisdom, the oratory, the argument. They want to be convinced and love the path of speculative philosophy to get there. Corinth, in particular, is interested in these philosophical pursuits to the extent that they had their own in-house philosophers and orators. To them, the Corinthians, the linchpin in belief was how well something was communicated so that it outshone all other options. For the moment, let's consider the desire of the Jew and the Greek. Why would we not want to see evidence to verify claims regarding Jesus? Aren't we to avoid false prophets? And how about argument? Our faith should not just be based on blind belief. If it is true, then it should be demonstrable as true and grounded in reality and logic. Here's the thing about God. For us to receive God, we must do so by acknowledging that he is God. To acknowledge that he is God is to accept the claims he makes about himself. Now, if we demand signs, we ground our faith in something that's actually outside of who he is. We base our faith not on his nature and reality, but rather on the results of this act. This exposes us. It exposes us to the danger of elevating those who perform signs and miracles above others who do not. The Corinthians had particular trouble with this bit, and this is why Paul has to address in chapter 12 the nature of spiritual gifts, which we'll get to. When we demand signs, we are also in danger of needing that sign. We must have it, and it must work every time to maintain our belief. This leads to all manner of dysfunction, from the health and wealth gospel to those who claim that extraordinary manifestations of the Spirit, such as speaking in tongues, is necessary to prove that you are a Christian. Now, on the other hand, if wisdom is what we need, now we have already placed God and all other deities, including ourselves, on an equal playing field. Convince me, we say, and when we are convinced, we believe. That is, until someone comes up with a better argument or perhaps shows us a hole in ours, and then our faith falls apart. During the 1940s and early 1950s, C.S. Lewis was chair of the Socratic Club. It was a club dedicated to debating the reality of Christianity, which became a tower of apologetics in Oxford, England. Lewis rarely lost, and when it finally came in 1948, he shared his great fear with his friend, George Sayer. Lewis worried that those who were present would falsely conclude from the defeat of his argument for the existence of God that God didn't exist. Apologetics are important and useful, but ultimately not the grounding of our faith but rather a way of pointing to the independent, stable foundation of our faith, Christ crucified. Now, don't mishear me. 
It's important that our faith be reasonable, that is, logical. And signs are used by God. In fact, just this week, we received word concerning one of the folks we've been praying for as a parish every Sunday, Jess Fisher. We've prayed for her for healing. Medically, she required a second surgery to repair her eardrum, but she has been fully healed without any further medical intervention needed. These things are important, and they happen. They happen frequently. But they are not the foundation of our faith. They are not what changes death to life. God wanted a different means for that. Paul highlighted this in verse 21, where he says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It pleased God. This is the way he wanted to do it, through the foolishness of a cross, a crucified Savior. And Paul is very particular about that. The word for crucified used here is astaromenon. It's a perfect participle, meaning the one who is crucified and continues in the character of the crucified one. It means that the reality of Christ was crucified is not just a historical fact, but endures, having impact in the here and now, and not just so many years ago on Calvary's Hill. Now, we recognize this weekly in the liturgy. You remember during the Eucharistic prayer, the breaking of the bread, Father quotes from 1 Corinthians saying, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us, and we respond, therefore let us keep the feast. The key word in that interchange is a verb, a tuthe, sacrificed. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed. It's not the present tense. It's not talking about the moment. It's the aorist. The aorist is talking about the past. Paul's talking about something that's happened already in the past. So the liturgy there, Paul is not saying that Father Sean is re-sacrificing Christ right there. It's reminding us, as Paul does, that Jesus is the sacrificed one on our behalf in the past. And that has present implications. Because Jesus' past sacrifice affects us in the here and the now with power. Our fitting response is, therefore, let us keep the feast. This is Paul's stable grounding. That Christ lived and died and rose again. At the beginning of every week, we gather and celebrate this and proclaim it amongst ourselves. And then we go out. We go out into the world as faithful witnesses. But we are those to whom it is wisdom and power. To us, the power of God is made present constantly through the Spirit, in a special way in the sacrament. It grounds us and reminds us of our identity as God's children in our baptism. Your righteousness... Your righteous standing before God is in Christ and not anything you can do. Period. End. As we gather and participate in communions, our neighbors shake their head and wonder why we waste a perfectly good morning to sleep in. We know, however, that what is foolishness to them, Christ who is crucified, is our lifeblood. And through it, we are cleansed 
and by him weekly we are fed, that we might have strength for the journey. So why does the unbelieving neighbor or coworker think this so absurd? I have regular conversations with my coworkers on Jesus. Americans tend to go for the Greek wisdom more than the Jewish signs, and as a result, those who I talk to think this is foolish, mainly because they don't see why the Christ event is necessary. They don't think they need saved, betraying the worldly wisdom at work in their heart. Oh, they can reason through a life issue. They can justify their general decency. Or they say they just learn to be at peace with the way things happen in life. That's life, they say. You just have to deal with it. You don't need to get worked up over it. They have no hope of healing, but rather an assumption that broken relationships and hurt and pain and sickness and death are normal. Life is as nature intended it to be. And with nothing to correct, they see no need for the hope that healing Christ brings. This is worldly wisdom. And hear me, this is very important as Lakewood Anglican continues to grow and learn and experience discipleship together, which will lead to outreach and evangelism. Hear me, it is not your job to overcome worldly wisdom. We are not called to continually become more and more proficient in our debate skills until we can argue our neighbors into faith. Paul makes this very clear in chapter 2. I'm starting in verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul isn't saying that we should forsake rhetoric. In fact, this whole section uh, that we've read today is written in a style of a very educated Greek philosophical discourse, as if to say, yeah, I can argue with the best of them, and I'm telling you, it cannot begin to compete with God's wisdom. What Paul is saying is that no man can add to the work of Christ, because man's wisdom is foolish compared to it, and his strength is weakness. And what man judges to be worthless, low, and despised, God's power, which is the Christ event, has made the greatest. Paul is saying the power of the gospel is not how well we can communicate it. The power is that it happened. It really happened. And it's not just a historical fact or an intellectual idea, but was an act of power that changes the way things work. This fact makes the latter half of chapter 2 possible. The world's power and wisdom is put to shame because it changes nothing eternally. But by the Spirit, we utter wisdom, the gospel, which does change things eternally and informs what theologians refer to as biblical wisdom. 
the knowledge of how to live life in accordance with God's character, His nature, and His will. And now in verse 10 of chapter 2, where Paul says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is him, him. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. God's ways can be known by us and discerned because we have God's Spirit, which leads us into all truth, as Terry read for us in today's Gospel reading. The Holy Spirit knows the ways of God, just as your own spirit knows your own heart. Through the Holy Spirit, we have access to that knowledge, and He will lead us into it. Now, God does not give us the Holy Spirit in order that we might be plucked up and removed from this present age. We know this from John 17, 15. Jesus expressly says he wants us left in the world. The Spirit is given to us to empower us to live well in this age, to live out what has already been given to us in Scripture and not lead us into the new latest truth fad as the ages roll on. The Spirit grounds us and gives us stability. This grounding and stability, this living well in the present age, is what Paul is interested in communicating to his children at Corinth. To recap, what is Paul's independent, stable foundation? The gospel, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why is it power and wisdom? because it affects eternal things and does not belong to and fade with the present. Do not forget this as you seek to be faithful witnesses in your week. You should strive to communicate the gospel well. Peter admonishes us in chapter 3 of his first epistle to be ready to give an account for the hope that is within us. However, it is not your communication skills that change hearts. It is God's power and wisdom. You are just witnesses. God does the heavy lifting. And finally, can we have biblical wisdom? Yes. Because the Spirit knows God, the Father's ways, and we have the Spirit. He will guide us in our walk. I hope that the coming weeks deepen us all. I am sure we will be challenged, affirmed, and discover new reasons to hope. Thank God, therefore, that because of his power and his wisdom, we have been and will be made whole. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.